Alrighty, if you this morning have your Bibles, uh, why don't you go ahead and turn now to Revelation 1. Revelation 1. If you do not have a Bible this morning, and you would like to borrow a Bible, or even you would just need a Bible, you, you can have one for free. You just raise your hand now, and a couple of guys in the back are passing this out. Just keep that hand raised. And the nice thing is if you're maybe newer and unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, Revelation's the very end. Uh, so you don't have to go searching in the middle. You just go to the very end of the book of the at the end of the Bible. It's the last book, Revelation, and chapter one is where we're going to be this morning. Revelation, chapter one. I wonder what word you think of when I use the word obsession. What sort of imagery comes into your mind if I were to say, you know, give me the mental picture of obsession? Perhaps you have a friend that is obsessed with a certain band or musical artist that they know all their songs, have all their albums, have the lyrics memorized, and have been to multiple concerts. Uh, Maybe some of you, it's a popular show. Uh, They have watched every single one of these shows on Netflix, or they've watched every Marvel movie five or six times, or something like that. Maybe it's sports. Maybe someone's a sports junkie, you know, all the stats, all the teams, all the players, etc. Maybe some of you are obsessed with clothing, obsessed with your phone, hence why you're always, always looking at it. Uh, obsessed with, some of you are obsessed with relationships, falling madly in love with someone every single week, uh, and then moving off of them, thus practicing emotion without commitment, which is why the divorce rate is so high in our country. But that's okay, I'll let you work on that later. But when I think of obsession, what I thought of is people who collect things, people who are collections. And so here are some collections I found. Manfred Rothstein, what a great name that is. Manny uh, is a dermatologist from North Carolina who who collects back scratchers. You know, back scratchers are those one thing. So he has 675 of them from 71 different countries. Good job, Manny. That's great. So Lisa Courtney... Uh, she's a young lady who owns over 21,000 Pokemon-themed items. Just a collection of Pokemon stuff, a, a Pokemaniac, if you will. So the other one I found is Sherry Groom. Sherry Groom is a, is a lady who has 3,500 troll dolls. You know where those troll dolls are? Yes, she has 3500 thus also earning the title of creepiest living room in America uh, simultaneously. You ever feel like someone's watching you? Um, the reason I bring this up is because Christians, uh, according to the Bible, Christians are those who are obsessed with Jesus Christ. Now, their whole life is about Christ. Their calendar is about them. Their actions is about Him. Uh, the decisions they make revolve around the person of Christ. If you're newer with us, uh, I would let you know that Christianity is not really a a religion about rules. It's not a religion about politics. It's not just something we do because our friends do it or it's about spiritual highs. It's about Jesus Christ, the one who has died for our sins, that we've entrusted our life over to him to rescue us from our sins. And Jesus says... If anyone wants to be my disciple, you need to follow me. Deny yourself. Make all of your life about me. The Apostle Paul, who wrote a large amount of the New Testament, will say things like, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Jesus is our life. 
Now, why do I bring that up this morning? It's a reminder of who we're supposed to be as Christians. It's a reminder, if you're newer, of what a Christian is. But I would remind us that it is sometimes hard to live that way for Christ. It is. It's hard to be all in for Jesus all the time because we have the temptation of the world, uh, the, the treasures of the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life that call us to say, live for the world, not for Jesus. We have our own sin that tempts us. We have the pressures from our friends. Um, even being a Christian in our day and age, it's, it's hard to be a real follower of Jesus. You know what it's like at your public school to be a real follower of Jesus. You know what it's like at your Christian school to try to be a real follower of Christ that seeks to obey Him. Uh, it's not going to get you uh, thrown in jail right now, but it will get you funny looks. You will be mocked for it. And so from outside pressure and inside desires, it's hard to follow Christ and to say, I'm going to obey Him above all else. And you know what? It was, it was hard for the people shortly after Christ had ascended into heaven as well, the time that, like, uh, at the time like when the book of Revelation was written. Because at that time, you would have gotten strange looks from your neighbors, strange looks from family members. You would have been disassociated with because you were following this, this carpenter from Israel. What this passage is supposed to help us do this morning, what we're going to see in Revelation 1, is going to help you live rightly for Christ. How do you do that? How, how do you get motivated to live rightly for Christ? How do you get your priorities rearranged again and say, you know what, life is about Jesus? It comes from seeing Christ rightly. The Apostle John, as he writes Revelation, uh, well, in exile on the island of Patmos, writing to believers who have been persecuted, one of their fellow believers in chapter 2, verse 13, we read, has been put to death for the faith. John writes this letter not to give us a cool map of the end times, but Revelation is to encourage believers who find it difficult to live for Jesus in a fallen world with their fallen flesh. And this morning, I want to help you. Revelation ver- chapter 1, we'll read verses 4 through 8. 4 through 8. Word of God reads, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia... Now, Asia is not Asia like we think of it today, like you know, Korea and Japan. Asia is, would have been a Turkey, Western Turkey. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from the one who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood. And he made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the might forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Yes, amen. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is God's word. Let's pray before we look at these passages together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use this time this morning to help us to live zealously committed to your Son. Lord, it is so good that Jesus is not a tall tale, that there is a resurrected king in heaven right now 
who is our Savior and our Messiah. Lord, I pray that in this brief time, you would help us to see him rightly so we might live for you rightly. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's the beginning of a letter as we read. We're not going to read the whole thing, though you are welcome to read through the book of Revelation this week if you'd like. This is the introduction to the letter, verses 4 through 8. And in this introduction, uh, what we won't get in today is John has this triune introduction. He's emphasizing the Trinity. And we see that in verse 4. He's talking about God the Father, that is the one who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, the seven spirits there is, uh, is symbolic language for the Holy Spirit. And you can look that up in Zechariah 4 if you'd like. But what we, we want to mainly speak, look at here is not the Father, not the Spirit, but this in-depth description of Jesus Christ, the Son. I want us to look at Christ. This passage is meant to help you understand that there is a resurrected person named Jesus Christ who actually lived, who actually raised from the dead, who is actually in heaven right now. And this text is supposed to help you live for him. This portrait is supposed to do two things. It's to compel us and to comfort us. This portrait of Jesus should compel us towards radical commitment to Christ. Where you say, if if this is who Jesus is, then school and sports and relationships and phone use All of it comes under his reign. He gets all of my life, not just a portion of it. He gets all of it. And this passage is meant to comfort us because when you get rejected for living like that, either by friends who don't go to church or friends who say, why are you being so spiritual? Can't you be more measured? When we get rejected, this passage is supposed to comfort us saying, no, no, this is who Christ is. And this gives me comfort that by living this sort of life, I am living the life that's honoring to God. Let's just look at who Christ is. I don't have really an outline for you today. I'm just going to look at verses 5 through 7, and we'll just talk about who Jesus is right now. Who is the resurrected Jesus we just talked about and sang about in first hour and this morning as well? Who is this Jesus, and how does he help us live for him? First we see, and from Jesus Christ, first it calls him, see there in verse 5, the faithful witness. He is the faithful witness. The word witness is an interesting word that we've used before. It's it's martios. It's the word where we get martyr. A witness is someone who's supposed to testify of something. In fact, we read that, remember right before I I prayed, before singing, we read from Luke 24 where, where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. And in Acts chapter 1, which is also written by Luke, Acts chapter 1, he says, You will be my witnesses, you will test me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Believers, that's what we're called to do. We are witnesses of Jesus Christ. We, we are witnesses of God and of the one whom God has sent. We testify, we tell people and believe the message of the gospel. And what you have here then, when it says that Jesus is the faithful witness, what you have here is, is the power of example. The power of example. Remember when you were really little? When I was in elementary school, they had something called the D.A.R.E. program. Does anyone know what the D.A.R.E. program is? Do they do this in homeschool? I don't know if the D.A.R.E. program is a thing. It's like uh, drug, drug abuse resistance education. And what they would do with that is it's like, see this person? They're looking like this. They're talking like this. They're all gnarly. They started smoking when they were young and beautiful like you. 
And now look at them. So if you want to end up like them, do this. But if you don't want to be like them, don't do that. Right? You see that. The same thing you see as well, like when there's weight loss commercials. Like weight loss commercials, it's always a skinny person. And here's a picture of what they used to be like, right? If you want to be like them, you just do the things that they do. And if you do these steps, here's the proof of what you'll be like. Well, what John is lifting up here to these witnesses of these seven churches he's writing to is the example of the ultimate witness. See, they're being called to be faithful to God. They're being called to stand firm in the midst of a world that does not want to talk to them. They're being called to say, look, you're gonna, if you're going to sign up to follow Jesus, you're going to live contrary to every way that people live. You have totally different thinking about the world. You have totally different pursuits in the world. And it's going to get strange looks. But, but let me show you, there's someone who already has done it. It's Jesus. He's the faithful witness. If you were here on a Good Friday uh, a couple nights ago, we heard about Christ as our example of suffering, who, who stood in the midst of persecution, who was trusting God and remaining faithful. That's what we're called to do. I just think it's awesome that our Savior doesn't call us to anything that He hasn't already done. And He hasn't already done to a much greater extent than us. That's who Jesus is. This, this life that's hard because of sin and because of the world, Christ has already done it. And He calls, calls us to follow in His steps. Okay, well... Jesus walked like that, and he was rewarded. How can I know that I will also be rewarded if I walk like him? Well, that gives us our second thing. Look, it says he's the faithful witness. He is the firstborn of the dead. The firstborn of the dead. Now, how many of you here are firstborn? You're the oldest kid. Okay, this has nothing to do with you, but I thought I'd point that out anyway. Just just an interesting thing. What is this language here of, of firstborn? It's interesting, by the way, This attribute and the next attribute are both taken out of Psalm 89, verse 27. They both, we won't won't look at that, but Psalm 89, 27 is a a psalm about the Messiah. And we see it being employed here, speaking of Christ. But when it talks about firstborn, what do we mean by that? Well, firstborn, some societies, the firstborn was somebody who, uh, firstborn would get more of an inheritance. There'd be maybe some more prominence that a firstborn would have. And it's, it's true that Jesus is first. What does it say here in this text? He's, he's firstborn of the dead. And so as we think about what does that mean, firstborn of the dead, first we realize that, I mean, Jesus did actually rise from the dead. And I know that it's Easter. You're like, Petrus, you're not shocking us with anything here. But it's good for us to remember that, that this actually happened. That's what sets Christianity apart. Uh, there's no other religious leader who's done this. Uh, you can go to Buddha's tomb. You can go to Joseph Smith's tomb. None of those people are alive today. Christ said he would rise from the dead and did rise from the dead. But what does it mean that he's the firstborn that's risen from the dead? 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So one since Jesus is the first to be resurrected as a portrait of what's going to happen to everybody else who believes in him. But the word firstborn doesn't always, you got to understand this, it doesn't always mean born first. In fact, in Psalm 89, when talking about the Messiah who would be a descendant from David, the psalmist says that this descendant will be made firstborn. Now, 
I don't know how, what sort of weird family tree work would have to do to make the seventh person born, the first person born. But the point is not that. The point is that they would be elevated to a place of prominence. And so Christ is the first and preeminent, preeminent of those who would die, rise from the dead, never to die again. What this passage is telling us is Jesus then is the prototype for all who have faith in God through Christ. Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead, never to die again. Friends, that is then true for everyone else. That that we will follow in Christ's steps. Because he died and rose from the dead, never to die again. We too who trust in him, that die will be raised, never to die again. Pastor John warned us this morning, death is coming for all. And resurrection is coming for all. But only those who trust in Christ will be raised to never die again. That's what's promised in Jesus. Death is the one thing in our world that we cannot conquer. But Christ has conquered it. And he's conquered it for everyone else who is part of the family of God, whose trust is in him. Third, what has he been raised to? It's, the third, it says he's the ruler of the kings of earth. Who is this Christ? The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth. Again, this is a, another reference to Psalm 89, 27. What does it mean that Christ is the ruler? It is interesting that in the book of Acts, we read about the rulers and authorities putting him to death. That Jesus, uh, under human government, was killed. Both governmental leaders, religious leaders, they put Jesus to death unjustly. But that's not the end of the story. Christ has been raised from the dead. And he's been elevated as ruler over all authorities on earth. Take your Bible, if you would, hold it right here in Revelation, and go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. Because we need to understand that Christ, in all his kindness and sweetness, has no rival on this planet when it comes to authority. That everything submits to his will. Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5 through 8 talk about um, Christ taking on flesh. That he became a man and even died on a cross as a man. He was obedient to the point of death, it says in verse 8. Then verse 9. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ reigns over everything. There is nothing on this planet of which he does not rightfully say, mine. He's the heir of all things, the inheritor of all things, it says in Hebrews chapter 1. And this whole universe is going to Christ, which we'll read later, one day who's coming to judge all things. Why? Because he has the authority to do it. You know, you've heard that you can't judge me, right? You say that to other people because they don't have authority over you. Jesus can because he owns it all. There is no rival to him. And he rules over all the earth. And yet, what else does it say? He's the ruler of the kings of earth. And then it just says this. To him who loves us. To him who loves us. 
Let's think about this. There's a man in heaven right now who was the faithful witness, faithfully obeyed God, who is the first and prototype of those who would die and be raised to never die again. And he has been raised up supreme above all authorities, above all rulers, who's going to rule this universe forever. Okay? Real person. And for those of us who are Christians, it says he loves us. Isn't that incredibly personal? Like you have this strength in Jesus, and then there's this this sweetness. Authority, and then personal affection for those who know him. He is king, but he is kind. Jesus Christ loves those who are his servants. And, And we have to, this morning move past a little bit of our familiarity with that statement. Because if you've grown up in church, which I know many of you have, you've you've grown up singing, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? And you sing it, and it's, yes, and you do the hand motions. Christ, who rules all things, Christ, whom you sin against, loves you, if you've trusted in him. That is great news. Uh, That is news you could start your morning with every day. To just think to yourself, despite my sin, Jesus loves me. Greater love is no man than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. Romans 8 says, nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing, then Romans 8 says, nothing separates us from the love of Christ. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is the offer of the gospel. There there is no person in the universe that has this kind of security, this kind of strength, uh, this kind of freedom to do whatever they want as king of the universe and who affectionately does what is best for those even who rebel against him. That's what the love of Christ is. No, the love of Christ is like, man, I love that guy. That's not what that is. It's he affectionately does what is best for you at all times. And if you come to him, confessing your sins, turning from your sins and trusting him, this sort of strength and affection can be aimed towards you. You might ask, well, that's really like warm and fuzzy that you say Jesus loves me, but how do we know? Well, we know because of the next description of him who loves us, and this is our our fifth one, and has released us from our sins by His blood. He's released us from His sins by His blood. He has has freed us, the word is there for release, freed. So what has He released us from? Well, He's released us from our sins, our rebellion. Sin is uh, not a psychological state. Uh, Sin is not feelings of guilt. Sin is Acts of rebellion against God. God has said, do this. And in our fallen nature, we have said, nah, we'll do something else. God has said, I want you to act in this way. And we have said, no, I understand. I heard you the first time. I still want to do this. Even if I sing some of your songs and know some of your words, etc. That is what sin is. 
Sin is horrific, and sin, rightfully therefore, deserves punishment from God, as we heard about in first hour. It deserves eternal wrath, because we'd have the audacity to stand up to the God of the universe and declare ourselves as kings. And yet Jesus has released us. He has set you free. The, the, the chains of sin, not just the chains that you know, keep our sin nature, but the, the penalty of sin that's chained to us. We've been freed from that, liberated from that. Colossians chapter 2 talks about it's as if this certificate of debt for our sin that we have that exists, it's as if it's been torn up, as if it's been nailed to the cross and goes against us no more. The sin that should condemn you, if you're in Christ, doesn't partially stick around. It's gone. It's off you forever. And how did it happen? It happened, it says, by His blood. That Christ came and died in our place. He physically died. Good Friday is always, I think, an emotional service because we think about the cross and we think about you know, the thorns, and we think about the whip, and we think about Jesus being beaten with a stick, and we think about the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet, and we think about his suffering on the cross, and then we, and we think about the wrath of God falling upon him. You know, it's emotional because it's, well, it's, it's intense. It's emotional because he's innocent, but it's an emotional because that's what it took to free us from our sins. Our sin against God is so horrific that, that it, was, it isn't just that God could go, oh, you're, you're, you're released, you're good. There has to be a punishment. And yet instead of that punishment falling on us in hell forever, it fell on Christ so that we could be not on parole, um, not, not from sinner to neutral, but from sinner to forgiven and loved and belonging to this one who has authority over all the earth. That's who Jesus is right now. He's the one who loves us and the one who has released us, freed us from our sins. So that what could be true today is that the blood of Christ could be applied to you if you've not turned to Christ and turned your life over to him. Saying, Lord, I need you to forgive me. That's who he is. He forgives. Next it says, he has, this is our sixth one. He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. Now this is amazing. Now now, many of you don't like the idea of white collars, and so you hear the idea of us being made priests. You're like, I don't know what this is talking about here. I'm not very comfortable with this. But here's what this is saying, is that he has not just saved us, But Jesus has then given us an identity. He's made us a kingdom, so we belong to him. We're his kingdom belonging to this good king. And he's made us priests. Priests being representatives. That we get to live on this planet as representatives of the good king who has saved sinners. Now this is amazing, right? Because God owes us nothing. Which, by the way, as a reminder, he doesn't owe you the week ahead if you think, I'll just wait till I'm older and then I'll turn to Jesus. He owes us nothing, but here's what he does. He not only forgives those who trust in him and removes their sin as far as from the east as from the west, he then employs them in his service. Like, 
You should never be God's friend because of your actions. And, and God not only loves you in Christ, but because of Christ, you now get to represent Him. You're on His team. Your identity now as you go through life is that you belong to Him and you tell others about Him and people get to see what a, a redeemed person looks like in your life. That's amazing. That's a privilege we do not deserve. It's also a good reminder, right? We're not saved then to live however we want. We're saved to represent Jesus. Now, I don't care what your student ID says. Your identity on campus is that you belong to Christ. And you're there to represent Him as one who's been purchased by His blood. That's what He's done for us. Finally, Last thing we see of Christ. What do we learn from him in this passage? What do we learn about the resurrected Jesus? We learn he's coming. He is coming. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Yes. Amen. He quotes two verses here. He's quoting from Daniel chapter 7 and Zechariah chapter 12, it's a reference to the, the coming on the clouds is a reference to the Son of Man. That is, uh, that in the book of Daniel, there's all these kingdoms that are going to rise up and replace one another. But finally, the, the final kingdom, where God's king will rule on behalf, is ruled by this Son of Man. And it's, it's pointing back to Jesus. Jesus is this Son of Man. Jesus is this king that's going to rule forever. He is coming, friends. He is coming in His time to rule this planet that, that all kingdoms, all political parties, all rulers will come to an end, and Christ is the one who's going to rule forever. And it has this interesting language. It says, Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. John's doing something interesting here. Because in, in Zechariah 12, where this first appears, it's, it's talking of a prophecy of, Judah, it's of the nation of Israel. It's, that, it's a prophecy that the nation of Israel is going to see Christ and recognize how horrible it is that they ask for Jesus to die. That when Pilate stood up there and said, who do you want to release, Barabbas or Jesus, who calls himself the Christ? They said, give us Barabbas. And Pilate says, what do you want me to do with Jesus? They say, crucify him. And Pilate washes his hands and, and says, I'm not guilty of this man's blood. And they cry out, His blood be on our hands. That there will be a time in the future where the, the nation of Israel will repent, recognize their wickedness against this, this Jesus whom they pierced. That's what Zechariah is talking about. But John here takes that and applies it globally, saying every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, yes and amen. That there's going to become a recognition of who Christ is. That right now, if you do not truly believe the weight of Jesus, the eternal God, condescending in dying for sinners... Friend, there is a day that you will. There is a day that you will understand the severity of who Christ is 
and the severity of rejecting him. But recognizing that doesn't mean that then you'll believe him. Because the rest of the book of Revelation tells of people seeing the lamb in all his fury. Isn't that amazing? A lamb, gentle, kind, and yet furious. Distributing wrath upon people in punishment for rejecting him. And you know what they'll say? They say, let the rocks fall on us so we don't have to deal with the lamb. And they refuse to repent. Friend, do not think that all is going to end well. I think I've preached this for you before. Everything in your world is telling you that it's okay, it'll work out in the end. Right? 43% in the class finds a way to get to 71.1 during finals week. Everybody makes the team. Every boss gives extension for showing up late. Every parent threatens to finally take away that privilege and lets you have it. Everything in the world is telling you that threats are empty. This is not one of them. This is not an empty threat. Christ is coming back to judge. And he's coming soon. And the Bible says we have no guarantee of when he's coming back. We have no guarantee that you'll live until he comes back. You need to turn to Christ. Friend, if you're here and you're a Christian, this verse, verse 7, is great news. Jesus is coming back. The dream will soon come to an end. And real life will begin. As we get to enjoy eternity with the Savior, who's rescued us, who brings us into a kingdom where sin and temptation and the wickedness of the world no longer is pushing us away from Christ. But you get to enjoy Him forever. It's not that heaven is coming soon. It's that Jesus is coming soon. All of it is centered around a person who makes everything right. So why should you continue to be faithful? Why keep living for Christ even when it's hard? Because Jesus is the faithful witness who's already done to a fuller extent what he's calling us to do. He's the firstborn of the dead. We're going to be raised like he's going to be raised. He is the king, so we fear no kings in this world. He loves us even when we're unlovely. He has released us from every sin we've ever committed. He has made us a people, given us a true identity. And he's coming back where we'll enjoy him forever. That's why right now you keep living for Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this portrait of your son. Lord, help, him to, help us to see him as glorious. Help us not to be blinded by the passing pleasures of this world. Lord, so many things in this world seem appealing, yet they are perishing quickly. They lead to destruction. Father, your son is good and glorious. He is better than we deserve. Lord, help us to bow the knee before him this morning. Help us to worship him. Help us to not take him for granted, but to treasure him above all and zealously commit our lives over to you. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your son. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.